Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Daniel M. Davis, author of the book, The Secret Body, How the New Science of the Human Body is Changing the Way We Live. Dan, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, wonderful to be here. Thanks, Mark. It's wonderful to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Oh, great. Thanks. Well, I'm a professor of immunology, so I study how the immune system works. Um, I'm currently based in the University of Manchester in the UK. And as it happens, I'm actually moving in two months uh, to Imperial College London, another university in the UK. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And my research is really visualizing with with really high-powered microscopes how the immune system really works. So we, in my lab, we take cells from blood samples and we make really high-resolution movies of how immune cells in your blood interact with cancer cells or virus-infected cells to try to understand how that recognition happens. And that's what my lab's been doing for the last 20 years years or so, building on the fact that I actually studied physics first, and my PhD is actually in physics. So using the physics to, to, to be able to use these high-powered microscopes and applying that to understand how the immune system works, I guess that's what I do. I, I was thinking that uh, that uh, hearing that uh, makes uh, a parts of the book that, that I read very, very, very understandable in, in, in terms of the focus, because it's a book about biology, but it's also a book about how technology is opening biology up to us in new and fascinating ways. What led you to write this book? Thanks, Mark. Well, essentially, it was exactly that. It was the realization to me in my everyday life as a scientist that things are kicking off in our understanding of the human body to an unprecedented extent, which which really comes from a whole suite of new technologies that are being developed that are opening up really radical new views of what the human body is. Um, So we go through in the book different parts of the body, cells, tissues, organs, uh, the microbiome, the brain, our genes, and so on. And, And I try to want it to... You know, I tried to explain how new technologies are giving us really different views of how all these components work. And I think that that leads us to important things that will affect our everyday life in the future. It, it really is fascinating to read not just about these recent discoveries that you feature, but you also provide a bit of the, the background, like how we began this process. And I was thinking, I'm thinking here about how you open uh, your uh, chapter on the individual cell with Robert Hooke. And you talk about how it was that that he, you know, began the process of using a microscope to study the body and where the word cell comes from. And and about how, how it, the tech, the, and how it, uh, you know, opens up that argument that you make about how technology you know, it changes our understanding and, and advances our understanding of the human body. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain uh, some of, you know, these recent innovations and how they're changing our understanding of, of the individual cell. Thanks, Mark. It's, um, 
you know, you're exactly right that it was it was way back in 1665 when when Robert Hooke first published this book called Micrographia when he was he was age 30 at the time. And it essentially was using a microscope to look at the world around us. And in that book, um, he has, for example, of pictures of a flea sort of magnified uh, over a sort of fold out page in the book. And so it was the first time that people could see this flea for the monstrous thing that it really was. Uh, in other words, he showed the world that microscopes open up doors to things that we just barely knew existed, uh, seeing giant-sized fleas, uh, uh, the mountainous edge of a razor blade, uh, the, the fact that unexpectedly, if you zoom in, a needle is actually blunt uh, at its end. So he opened up that, that for us, and it really tells us that using a microscope can show us things we just didn't know were there. And so that's my starting place, that, that new technologies bring us to completely new places that we didn't knew, know, know was there. But what's equally important to understand there is that the, a light microscope, you know, can't just zoom in forever and ever and ever. So you can't just get make a microscope to see better and better and better and better. There's a limit to that. And in fact, it was in 1872 that a German uh, physicist, Ernst Abbe, first did a mathematical calculation to show how good a light microscope could ever be. And in fact, the, the formula, the mathematical formula he eventually derived to say how good a microscope could ever be is written in stone on a memorial uh, to him in, in Germany in Jena where, where he lived. And a, a starting place for my book is that actually in relatively recent years, we, not just, not we as in the scientific community, not me, myself personally, but we have created microscopes that actually do beat that fundamental law of physics for how good a microscope could ever be that was once written on stone. And we now do have microscopes to zoom in better than ever before. And that gives us new views of what cells really are. And in turn, I think that will open up new ideas for medicine. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain, just give us one example of the what we're learning with this new uh, microscopy, with this new uh, technology. What, what what are we coming to under? What's an example of what we're coming to understand about cells that we either did not know or were mistaken about previously? Yeah. So thanks, Mark. That's um, you know that, that's exactly where I want this book to, to sort of to, to get across. That first off, I explained the journey of how we built microscopes that beat a fundamental law of physics. And, and I tell that story, which spans uh, decades from scientists of different temperament and different backgrounds, and how we got to that, uh, the amazing innovation of creating microscopes that beat a fundamental law of physics. And then, of course, I want to describe how we're using that. And I give some examples across other labs in, in, in the book, but of course, it's not that my own lab's research is any more important than the other people's. I mean, every, lots and lots of labs are using these new kind of but of course, I do know my own research better uh, than, than I know everybody else's work. So I do describe some of the research we're doing in my own lab. And one of the 
um, examples that, that I give in, in the book is um, we're using these new kind of microscopes to try to understand the, the molecular scale details of how an immune cell will be able to fight off a, a cancer cell. Uh, and I, show, I talk about how, so when an immune cell sticks onto a cancer cell and recognizes it as a cancerous cell, the immune cell will then secrete, send out toxic molecules from its own inside. So these, the, the immune cell contains toxic molecules and it will then send out those toxic molecules onto the cancer cell and then they would kill the cancer cell. Now, one of the one of the ways in which that happens is that you so you have these these sort of packets that contain these toxic molecules and those those packets have to move from within inside the interior of the immune cell they have to kind of fuse with the outer edge of the immune cell and then the contents of those toxic molecules go across to kill the cancerous cell that that is being that the immune cell has latched onto and what happens is one of the pro one of the parts of that process that we observe with these new kinds of microscopes is at the edge of every cell in your body there's there's a sort of a, a, a protein network like a, like a skeleton like a, it's called the cytoskeleton of the immune cell and that sort of gives it its shape and allows the immune cell to to have a shape and to be able to move uh, uh, around the body and you can imagine that as as like being like the inside part of a tennis racket, like lots of lines that make up sort of squares, a mesh, a mesh that's at the edge of your cell. And that mesh of molecules is, is giving the cell its shape and structure. But these packets of toxic proteins have to be able to move through that meshwork to deliver their contents and kill uh, a cancer cell. And what happens for that, one of the bits that happens that we only saw happen with these new kinds of microscopes is that when the immune cell is going to kill a cancer cell, that meshwork has to open up to allow the killing process to happen. So if you imagine that mesh as the inside part of a tennis racket, then the squares have to get bigger to allow the toxic uh, the packets of toxic proteins to fit through. So the, the, the meshwork has to open up, the packets of toxic proteins have to go through it, and then they can release their contents to kill a cancer cell. And we can only see that happen with new kinds of microscopes that could resolve and see right down to that minuscule thing. Now, you might say that's kind of a nuanced detail of what happens. Um, uh, and that is true, that that is a sort of detail in this process. But it turns out that that detail is really important because, well, actually, the story then sort of fits because my father has uh, multiple myeloma and one of the medicines that he is on um, comes from the uh, thalidomide, which, of course, many of you will know as the, the, the drug that was given to pregnant women as a sedative and created one of the world's worst ever tragedies in medicine where untold numbers of babies were deformed and died because of thalidomide. That is a huge tragedy. But what happened when that was given 
uh, as as a as a drug was it was anecdotally observed that thalidomide did seem to have some anti-cancer properties and a company then made a version of thalidomide that was less toxic and then used to help treat cancer patients but no one quite really understood how that medicine really works to give it anti-cancer properties now i just took that drug added it to cells in a lab dish and then made we, we make in my lab movies of what happens when immune cells are trying to kill cancer cells in the presence of that drug and one of the things we observed was that that meshwork the inside bit of a tennis racket opens up even more to allow immune cells to more effectively kill cancer cells so that might be in part one of the ways in which immune cells can kill cancer cells more effectively in the presence of that medicine thalidomide so, so to be clear, when we understand exactly what the effect of the chemical or the compound or whatever it is that we're using, once we can actually see that effect, we can then say, well, what can we do to modify or increase that effect? Because that is the actual result that we're going for, correct? Yes. And understanding exactly how that medicine works also gives us ideas about what other types of situations that medicine might be useful in. Um, and so it turns out that at a scientific meeting, uh, I was, you know, happened to be chatting in the bar to one of the other scientists, and he was working on a completely different area of science to me. Um, and he was looking in particular at children that have a very rare genetic disease called Chidiakigashi syndrome. And these children... Um, it's a very rare disease, but the children suffer from recurrent infections, and sadly, they often die uh, uh, at a young age because of in infections. And he had observed that immune cells from these children were not very good at killing cancer cells or virus-infected cells in, in a lab dish situation. And one of the things that he had observed was that the, top, the packets of toxic proteins that immune cells have to send out to kill a diseased cell that they've uh, stuck to, that packet of toxic proteins looked much bigger than normal. And although he had shown that the packet of toxic proteins did seem normal in that they had the same toxic proteins in them, maybe they were just in packets that were too big to come out of the immune cell. And so we had the idea that this drug that had been used in cancer patients, would that open up this meshwork more, get the squares from the inside bit of a tennis racket to open up even more to allow the toxic uh, packets of toxic proteins to come out properly. And so we couldn't do that test uh, in in children, but we could we took blood from children and showed that in a lab dish you could get a more could get those immune cells to kill um, disease cells in a in a in a lab dish situation by using the drug that was previously used in cancer patients that before that was used for one of the world's worst tragedies in medicine. So it's a, it's a complicated uh, um, process by which we get to medicines that can be used in cancer patients that might be useful in other situations. Uh, and understanding all of that comes right back to the technology leap that happened with making microscopes that could really see what was properly happening uh, um, 
And without that new technology, without seeing what was happening, it would be very hard to, to work out the process of what was happening. It's one of the parts of your book that, that I really enjoyed, which was how you trace the the, the process of of of, of discovery, the the, 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 the the process of, of, of research and innovation. And I'm thinking, for example, in, in your uh, in your the, the, the second chapter about the embryo, how you describe the story of, of Magdalena uh, Zernika Getz and about how she how, how this, you know, her personal situation leads to these radical new discoveries and how, you know, so you have this one rather intimate, uh, you know, moment and, and how it, it creates this new understanding about the embryo and, and, and opens up new possibilities for what we can do uh, with science today. Yes, I think that developments in in embryo technology as as you say that we 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 are detailing in the book what, what's going on there and we're at the cusp of so much in in developments in using ivf technology and of course that on the horizon are improvements in that technology that might include selecting embryos for particular genetic compositions, screening out certain diseases. And possibly, as you know, there's been even some illegal, essentially, or, un, you know, against the against scientific consensus, people have tried to even edit uh, human embryos uh, in, in, um, in a famous example in, in China. So, again, the technology has opened up all sorts of new biology, which is extremely important for for how we live, as you say, in in, in selecting for particular embryos, and even, so even at the point of deciding who will be born. Yeah, it's it's rather uh, frightening in some ways, but also it's it's very exciting the, the idea of what has become possible. We we. You know, have talked about it for a long period of time, but as you talked about, as in the case with with Ho Jiangqi, and I apologize if I mispronounced the name, uh, about how what he was doing with it, he wasn't trying to create, you know, super babies. He was trying to create a, a babies who were resistant to a particular disease, and how something like that, which was, uh, you know. The stuff of science fiction, say even you know thirty years ago, today is, is something that that we do seem, as, as you detail, to be close to achieving in, in 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 certain cases. Yes, so I think you know this is extremely important, and you know right now we allow parents the freedom to choose, for example, whether or not to have a child with Down syndrome, um, but that is just the tip of the iceberg. And what I think is, is particularly important about this revolution that's happening across human biology is that all the new technologies being developed equip each of us as individuals with new powers that we have to personally decide when to use. So it's not that, you know, in other revolutions, like with agriculture or computer technology that you know or the industrial revolution that changes the job market essentially they affected our environment and all of us in how we live but the difference here is that these the technology 
that are revolutionizing human biology, for example, in embryo research, in IVF technology, and so on, they are affecting your own individual choices about what you will do for yourself and for your children. And so that is why this is a very, very different revolution to the previous scientific revolutions uh, that, that would be familiar. I was fascinated to, to see how in your chapters you describe uh, that so much of this is based upon simply trying to understand how the body works generally, not just you know the effect of, say, a particular medication or a particular treatment. And, and I'm thinking about your, your chapters on, say, the body's organs and the brains, about how this isn't just simply a matter of, say, you know, hardware, that it's not a matter simply of, say, you know, developing a better microscope. It's also about uh, introducing uh, ways of, say, tracking uh, particular cells to uh, to identify them using uh, chemicals, using lasers, and, and I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about why that process is in some in so many ways just as important as the the, the development of, of better hardware to where we can see what's happening. Yes, Mark. So that that's you're exactly right. That part of the development in technology that brings us whole new levels of understanding is in the software is in the computational analysis it's not just building new microscopes as you say or, or other kinds of hardware it's also in the way in which we analyze things and perhaps a good example of that is in how we understand the diversity of cells that make up the human body that make up our tissues and organs and so for example well let me give you an example where to profile the cells of the body, let's just, if you can picture that a cell may have two markers on it, let's say a marker that's red and a marker that's green. And then you could imagine on a graph, on axes, you could have how much red a cell has and how much green a cell has along the bottom axes and how much red a cell has on the up axes. And then where each cell is, you could put a dot. So a, a dot in the upper right corner would have a lot of red and a lot of green, and a cell in the bottom left corner would have no red and no green. Equally, as if a cell had a lot of green and no red, it would move along the bottom axis but not go up the other axis. So essentially, you can imagine that a cell could be plotted on a graph according to how much red and green it has. In other words, how much red it has, how much green it has would become its coordinates. Now, by doing that, if you get a lot of dots in one particular place on that graph, those are probably similar cells. They are the same type of cell. If you have cells, lots of dots in another splotch on that graph, they would be a different cell. So by plotting where every cell is, you, could, you would see lots of dots clustered together to be a group of cells. And that way, you could begin to understand the types of cell that make up the body. But of course, to define a type of cell, you don't just have two coordinates, how much red it has, how much green it has. Every cell in your body has all of your genes in it. 20,000 genes roughly make up the human genome. And every cell in your body has those 20,000 genes. But what makes one cell different from another cell is which of those genes 
are really switched on in that cell to be used to make protein molecules because protein molecules define what a cell is. So what you really want to do is analyze every cell according to which of the 20,000 genes it's using. And so the technology to do that is now available. So instead of just plotting two things about a cell, we can have 20,000 things about each cell because we can say which genes each cell is using, which of the 20,000 genes each cell is using. Now, of course, you can't, I can't visualize tw a, a graph of 20,000 axes on it, but a computer can calculate, do calculations on that in just the same way as a graph with two axes on it. And so within this world of 20,000 parameters, it, a computer can still calculate which bunch of cells, which, where cells are in that space and which bunch of things look the similar. So a computer can analyze all of the cells of the body or all of the cells in a sample of blood or all the cells in a, in a biopsy and say what cells are in there according to which of these 20,000 genes is that cell using. So a, a cell might be using, say, 5,000 genes in particular, and other cells might be also using those 5,000 genes. They would be the same cell. So a computer could calculate what cells are in a sample. Now, what's really exciting about doing that is, is that we don't, I don't have to tell the computer to look for this cell or that cell. I could just give a sample, say which genes it's using, and a computer can analyze that and tell me how many types of cell there are in that sample and what are they. Now, that kind of analysis is leading to discoveries at the level of a completely new type of human cell can be identified because a bunch of dots will appear that, mean that there's a certain type of cell in that sample and maybe we haven't ever seen that type of cell before. So a long time ago, you know, Leuvenhoek famously uh, looked down a microscope to discover new kinds of cells. He discovered sperm, for example. He discovered bacteria just by using a microscope. Now we discover completely new kinds of cells in the human body by doing a computer analysis of all the genes that cells are using and we can find new cells through that kind of analysis. And it's not just uh, cells that we're talking about here, it's neurons. And that to me was, was really fascinating, this idea that we, because the, the brain is, 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 is such a famously difficult uh, you know, organ to understand. And with magnetic resonance imaging as you described, we're beginning, and, and, uh, some, and some of these new techniques that we're developing, we're actually beginning to understand better how the brain operates and, and, and some of the things that you, we can do with this as you describe are really quite fascinating. Yeah, so what's, what's fascinating about the brain is that, so we've just spoken about sort of new things about how cells work and how, and then we've talked about technologies that really open up the discovery of entirely new kinds of cell in the human body, the brain is really about working out which neurons are connected to which other neurons. So it's another level of problem. Here we need technology that can determine which neurons are connected to which other neurons. So although, obviously, we still don't understand exactly how a brain gives rise to, you know, something that can create poetry. But what we do know is that it's got, it's about 
the connections between neurons. And so there are now technologies, which we talk about in the book, where individual cells can be colored in a random way, in the same way that the computer screen uses three colors, essentially, to then give you all the colors uh, by you know, a certain amount of red, green, and blue can create any of the colors that you need in, in a computer screen. That could be done in the brain so that you can now have neurons of a brain colored with a random amount of red, green, and blue so that each neuron has its own particular color. And that helps you be able to depict which neuron is connected to which other neuron because now you can pick out the individual neurons a bit more easily than before. And that then allows you to start to think about how neurons are connected. So again, it's a new technology that opens up a new way of seeing the brain, which in turn will help us understand how the brain really works. Well, the other another thing that, that really fascinated me was when I was reading your book was reading about its ability to understand the life within our own body. And here I'm talking about the, and I, I again, I apologize if I mispronounce this, is it, the, is it pronounced the microbiome? Sure. Uh, the microbiome in the notion of how we're just how over the past uh half century our understanding of the of the of the amount of the microbiome is just really expanded you you describe how in the 1970s we thought there were maybe 300 different types of bacteria living in our body and how this is now now we're talking about thousands of different types of bacteria and and, and how as and the the more we study it and and, and the more we we know the, the the more we have to increase the numbers and our understanding as to how these things do things for our body that are absolutely indispensable and 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 in return how the, this is bacteria that we can find nowhere else in the world it just exists in us and nowhere else i, I thought that was amazing how we're, we're coming to appreciate how in a sense we're not one organism we're, we're thousands yes that's exactly right mark so there are you know, something like 10,000 different species of bacteria in your body. And we know most about the, the, the versions of bacteria that, you, that live in your intestine because actually they're relatively easy to analyze from your stalled feces poo. And again, it's the technology. So opening up, being able to analyze the genetics of bacteria in your stool the technology able to do that has shown us a whole nother world of, of all these bacteria that reside within inside the gut, the human gut. And they are a crucial part of our, of who and what we are. Um, they do many jobs in the body as we discussed in the book. And also there's at the moment, we're just on the cusp of really being able to understand that deep, symbiotic relationship between us and the bacteria that live on and within us and of course there are many other aliens if you like to the human body there are viruses and, and fungi and, and other other things that reside within us that we actually know very little about at the moment uh, and there are many examples where we have hints that this is hugely important medically so for example there has been an analysis where the composition of a person's gut, ba gut, gut bacteria, the microbiome, as you say, that correlates with whether someone is likely to do particularly well on a certain type of cancer treatment. So there are hints from that type of work that this analyzing the gut microbiome is hugely important 
or will be hugely important medically. We're not quite there yet. We still only have a kind of gist of what's going on, but we're on the cusp of And that's why I think that we are at a revolutionary time or we're entering a revolutionary time because we are just now glimpsing these other aspects of human biology, things that are happening inside cells, new kinds of cells in the body, new ways of 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 having people born, new analysis of the microbiome, all of these things, we're just on the cusp of understanding them deep enough that they will have uh, medical outcomes in the future. I mean, what I really think is happening, what, what really motivated me to really want to tell all these stories is that I think that right now, so in, in, it was something like 1887 when, when the German scientist Heinrich Hertz um, found a way to make waves that we could that we can't see obviously there's light waves that we can see but we now know very familiar that there are x-rays and radio waves all these waves that we can't see and you know he died um at a, at a young age i think he was 36 and he could never have predicted at that time that the work he did on waves we cannot see would lead to the radio, the internet, and the TV. And I think we're at that point in understanding the human body, that things are just opening up. Things that we couldn't see before are just opening up. The microbiome, the way cells interact, even the actual nature of the human cells. All these things are opening up, and it's it's impossible to predict what, how this is going to play out, you know, 100 years from now, in the same way that, waves led to something as wild as the internet you know what is this all this new human biology going to lead to in 100 years from now is impossible to fathom well what i was fascinated by was the directions that you indicate and i was thinking going uh, going back to uh the, the chapter about the bio it is you've been talking a lot about medical innovations you've been talking about cures but there's it's the mundane stuff that in some ways is even more fascinating when you when you have that description about uh uh, Ellen Evans and and, and uh, Siegel doing their study about uh how glucose levels uh, are, are, are different in different bodies and people uh, are reacting differently and how this suggests that we talk about diets and how this, the idea that, that diets, which is something that, that, that millions of us are concerned about, you know, if not billions, how, you know, this suggests that maybe we need to start individually attuning diets because individual bodies based upon the biomes are going to react in different ways to the same types of foods. And it's, it's not about, uh, necessarily allergies or, 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 or preferences. It, it's this notion about how the gut bacteria and 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 the this this you know dynamic that we're only just beginning to understand really means that we can't just have this one size fits all application to this some this thing that we do every day of our lives. Yes, I think that's exactly right, Mark. So hopefully, it's coming across that there's a lot that we learn as we and all these technologies open up aspects of the body. One of the things that keeps coming up is the is our is our uniqueness, the, our individuality. And a really good example of that is in something as simple as how we respond to food and the diet. So as you say, you know, millions of people are, are, are uh, well, certainly in Western society, millions of people are, are, are on a diet to, um, to, for example, lose weight. And, and the idea there 
many diets are based around the idea that you want to avoid foods that give you a, a sugar spike, essentially. You, the, 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 the so-called glycemic index of a food. And so you want to avoid, say, a food like ice cream or chocolate or something that might cause a spike in your sugar and that might cause you to have an excess uh, um, calorie intake, which would then lead to obesity. But from the analysis that's being done, what's turning out to be really important is in fact that we all respond in an incredibly individual way to different kinds of food. And so that one person's response to rice might be completely different from another person's response to rice in terms of how much uh, their, their the sugar levels spike in their blood. One person's good diet is not the same as another person's good diet. And perhaps that's one of the really fundamental reasons why there's a vast number of different kinds of diet out there, and yet none have been unequivocally proven to work better than any other one. One of the reasons for that is very likely because we all have an individual response to food. And as you say, it seems that a dominant correlative factor in that is what's happening in our microbiome, in the bacteria within our gut. So that's not to say that we immediately understand what would be the right diet for you, but we're on the cusp of it. And I really think that that, 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 that is one area where progress is very likely to happen in the next in the coming years, understanding nutrition and diet and how our individual response to it varies. I, I was thinking though that nothing better demonstrates how technology is changing our perspective on the body than the Human Genome Project. And you spend your uh, penultimate chapter uh, describing how the the how that happened over the past. Uh, generation and, and the role that technology played in that. And, and, and I think that really, given how much publicity it's received, it really does underscore this the, the sense that you described that we are on the cusp of this vast new panorama of, 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 of new discoveries and new understandings. Yeah, thanks, Mark. So I think, you know, people are sort of familiar with the idea that genes linked to disease. Um, uh, famously, for example, uh, Angelina Jolie um, had a mastectomy because she was, uh, from her family history and her, her genetics, she, she, she was open about that in a, in a New York Times uh, op-ed. And famously, she had something like an 87% chance of getting breast cancer herself. So she dealt with that. And so people are, are by having a mastectomy, and people are familiar with that idea. But I think as this... As we dig deeper and deeper into human genetics, things are becoming more and more nuanced. As the, all these patterns and codes that define who we are open up, we get more and more detailed information about what we're likely to be susceptible to in the future. And that includes genes, as well as an our microbiome and our cells and everything else. So putting it all together, you end up, with the possibility of knowing in a very detailed way what you may or may not be susceptible to in your life. But with that power, again, come very difficult issues for each of us to deal with. See, in Angelina Jolie's case, there was quite a high chance that she would develop the problem later in her life. But most of these 
genetic analyses or other types of analysis will lead us to much more subtle and complicated things to deal with. So, for example, if you had, if you were given a one in five chance of, of getting cancer over the next 10 or 20 years, you know, how would you deal with that information, especially if the the way in which you might deal with it, for example, taking a drug or surgery, carries its own risks as well. So we have to be, it's a really important time because we have to address the implications of what this analysis of the human body will mean for how we look at our own health. And I think we'll all have to make individual decisions about how much we want to know about ourselves. Already that's sort of coming online now and people are familiar with, you can, You could get a genetic analysis of your, of, you could have your whole gene, genome analyzed. There are companies that do that right now. And that is again, just the tip of the iceberg. You know, I think right now you could get a watch that measures a few things about you. But I think in the future, the potential will be there to have a whole world of information and data about your own body. And so you have to start to think about how much of that do you want to know, given that dealing with that information is actually quite hard and difficult and has its own dilemmas. Hmm. Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Oh, thanks, Mark. Well, in my own lab is where most of my energy goes. And uh, you know, I love writing and writing is really important to me. It's not a hobby. It's, it's a deep thing that I have to do. But also the scientific research itself is important uh, to me, of course. And so right now in the lab, we're looking at new ways to try and understand the, the diversity in immune cells. Obviously, you'll know that there are different kind of immune cells in the body. T cells and B cells have kind of become a bit famous for producing antibodies and things, especially in the uh, as you know, in the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic. And we're trying to understand in my lab how different, how really diverse different kinds of immune cells are, and and as well as that, at the level of people, how different people's individual people's immune system is what is the difference between my immune system and your immune system which will be down to our genetics and the history of infections we've had and we want to understand the diversity in immune cells within a person and between different kinds of people it sounds like fascinating work and i wish you the best of luck with it thanks mark thanks it's, <laughs> it's also it's fascinating work it's also really hard work <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> and it's just, it, and, and to think that, you know, how much, you know, more we, we're, we're still learning, I, I can only imagine what, what it's going to look like just, just five or 10 years from now. Yeah, it's just impossible to imagine that kind of thing. You know, when I was younger doing my own PhD in physics, it would have been impossible to imagine that there were microscopes that could beat a fundamental law of physics about how good a microscope could be. And yet we have them now. So actually, it's quite impossible to imagine what the state of my own lab's research would be in 10 years, never mind everything else that's happening across everybody else's lab. I mean, this is, this is a, 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 an endeavor that spans tens of thousands of people, if not more, uh, across the globe. And I really believe that all kinds of aspects of human biology are really exploding right now. Well, uh I wouldn't want to take you away from your part of it for any longer. Uh, Dan, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. 
Thanks so much, Mark. It was wonderful to talk to you.